Greetings and welcome to this uh, fourth session as we uh, reflect on uh, various interpretations of the atonement. That is the question um, of what was Christ doing upon the cross. And in this session, we're going to be looking at uh, the Christus Victor or classic interpretation of the atonement. And I'd like to welcome uh, special guest joining me again today, uh, Dr. Steve Paulson of the Luther House of Study, and my nephew, Nick Christofferson. So welcome, gentlemen. And uh, I would just like to jump in here right away with perhaps asking Dr. Paulson to um, give us a little bit of a summary or uh, historical uh, updating as we move now from the objective Latin view uh, put forward by Anselm, and then the subjective humanistic view of Abelard, and how it is that these are coming together with um, our study for today, or reflection on the Christus Victor classic um, interpretation. Well, right. It's not as if uh, we were, the church was waiting for Anselm and Abelard in the 11th century to tell them what the how to preach the cross of Christ or that that Jesus Christ's crucifixion was our salvation and so for a thousand years uh, preachers had been preaching on this and they almost always referred to a particular text in scripture from the from the book of of Job to identify uh, how it is to preach the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as our salvation. And that was the story about how uh, Leviathan, the great monster of the sea, would be caught by using a hook. And uh, this became the main way that preachers preached the cross of Jesus Christ. It was a hook used to snag the great leviathan who is satan and uh in that way reel him in fillet him and have him for dinner and those of us who have been uh, interested in fishing over the years have always rather liked this particular illustration for the cross of jesus christ um and nevertheless by the 11th century, you know, a thousand years of preaching from this, I suppose after a thousand years and hearing uh, about 10 million sermons uh, about the uh, way that Christ uh, tricked Satan uh, through the use of a hook uh, into biting uh, on the line and then being reeled in, I suppose that, that seemed to get kind of old to people. And by the 11th century, then we had these two new um, suggestions uh, about the way to describe the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that we've seen with Anselm and Abelard. Uh, the one talking primarily about Jesus paying a debt, Anselm's, and the other uh, about Jesus giving us the best example of an act of love that you could ever have, which was then a kind of motivational uh, illustration for how it is that we are to love. And though th that, I suppose, oversimplifies it in a way, those 
those two began to describe uh, the, uh, the, the act of love and the payment of a death, a death as the way to talk about the crucifixion of Christ. But, um, they had their reasons that were a little beneath the surface for this as to why this long-standing thousand-year tradition of preaching crucifixion uh, needed to change. Uh, and part of that came from a time in France in particular where people were uh, starting to operate uh, in what, what most of us know as the world of the night. Uh, the, the, the noble knights uh, who were to come and preserve virtue in a society in a, and in a country that was, that was really um, uh, hanging on by a thread in many ways. And many of you know that the early Middle Ages, as they're called, were understood to be a reversal in society, and a whole set of social problems began to emerge. And the, the idea of these noble knights, on the one hand, uh, also produced a, a, a new teaching on love. And we talked about that last time, where the French supposedly taught us how what true love was and what it meant to actually court somebody and, uh, and how it was that men in particular were supposed to be honorable and virtuous and how it was they, they were supposed to uh, act like two, true Christians. Uh, and uh, they began to be worried that the preaching of Christ uh, as, a, uh, as a hook started to talk about Satan too much and specifically about how Satan uh, was a war, um, was engaged in a war with uh, Christianity and with Christ in particular. And this got them a little bit nervous because it started to speak about the necessity for Christ to die in order to defeat Satan. And that to them, uh, sounded as if this were not simply an act of virtue or honor or love, but it was somehow God fighting a power in Satan that shouldn't really be there. After all, if God is God, there should be one power, one creator, one almighty, and there shouldn't be some other kind of power like Satan's uh, kingdom or power that God has to overcome, that would seem to threaten God as the almighty power uh, right at its core. And they began to be very nervous about the, the description of the crucifixion as God fighting Satan and therefore attaining some kind of victory over Satan. And they felt it gave Satan too much power and they felt uh, that in some way or another, uh, it indicated that God was uh, flawed, maybe worse. God was somehow at fault, or perhaps there was something like two gods fighting it out, which they understood was not what the Christian teaching was about. And that, that part is true. But they started to say, we have to get rid of this theory or idea or illustration of God tricking Satan. After all, those of you who have been out fishing know 
that fishermen are out there doing something that is immoral, uh, that is unvirtuous. Not only are they not coming in when their wife calls, but they are also uh, out there tricking fish who otherwise are God's good creation and uh, shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be uh, uh, somehow uh, introduced to this problem of having a fisherman with a worm on a hook that plops down in front of them and then tricks them into thinking that this is a good meal and suddenly uh, they are uh, being served up as dinner. And uh, the poor fish, they, uh, we would think, by the same token, these uh, teachers began to say, there's something really wrong with saying that Satan has this power, first of all, and secondly, that God has to stoop to such a level of trickery to put his son like a worm on a hook and then trick Satan into taking the hook, and only by this means are human beings and their sin actually um, redeemed. And all of this seemed to be beneath the dignity of uh, a virtuous knight or someone uh, who is attempting to become uh, a, uh, a higher virtuoso in uh, God's moral kingdom. And so they began to fight against this particular teaching. Yeah, it seems to me again here, uh, Steve, that as, as we talked about earlier with any of these um, interpretations or theories, that the nature of God in them really has to be examined, uh, lest we get into serious trouble. Uh, what I heard you saying earlier is, for one, um, the central one of the central tenets of the Judeo-Christian faith is um, that God is one. Uh, to quote the Shema, or, as well as um, in our own Christian faith, we are a people who are monotheistic, and it seems as what you're saying here is you're introducing a kind of dualism that initially, early in his life, St. Augustine was very, very attracted to uh, with the Manichaeans and Zoroastrian kind of thinking that we have in movies these days like uh, uh, Star Wars, The Force Be With You, and <laughs> The Dark Side. We have this uh, cosmic battle that's going on. And um, with this, I think... Um, the doctrine of God here um, gets rather, as you say, uh, kind of messy. And um, understanding here with uh, Christ uh, and the two natures as well, as we think about the theology of it, would you say that Christ in his humanity then is the hook, or excuse me, the bait, and then his divinity is the hook? upon which uh, Satan is uh, grabbed. Okay. okay. Well, right. I think what I yeah, wanted yeah, to add to yeah. that with the Manichaean uh, uh, business with, with Augustine was I think he was really wrestling with um, his concern to deal with the problem of evil. And he could kind of nicely deal with it 
uh, with Neoplatonic ideas or this kind of Manichaeanism uh, of there being two gods, God of darkness and God of light, that uh, it would be easy to say, well, it's the God of darkness that we're dealing with, with sin in the world and evil and tragedy, but the God that we know of light um, in Christ uh, would never have anything to do with it. So it was a, a neat way to kind of dole it out. However, <laughs> you ended up with a worse problem than you began with. Well, uh, you're right. One of the issues here is something like Manichaeanism. You're right. And the idea here is that uh, there, there, that the only way to describe um, evil and, for that matter, redemption, how we are saved, is that a God is victorious over an opponent. But the minute you say that, then you say, how can God have an opponent? I mean, how, how does that actually work its way out? And the quickest way uh, people have assumed God could have an oppon opponent whether they are Christians or not, and you're talking about Manichaeans who are, uh, are actually producing a Star Wars picture of the universe, uh, of the evil force and the good force fighting, they're doing that uh, more or less uh, outside of Christianity entirely, and just trying to figure out how it is that bad things happen to good people, and, Good things happen to bad people, and how is there evil anyway? And so uh, this has been in the mind of human beings, whether they're Christians or not, uh, from, from the Stone Age uh, and onward. Why, why, why are we suffering? Why, why, are we, why is it so difficult? Uh, why, don't the, uh, why don't the buffalo just fall into my lap? I mean, why do I have to go out and uh, run around and chase them? And... Uh, and uh, why is there such a, a thing as uh, starvation and death and so on? So that that's running throughout humanity. Then when you you're right. Then when you put this together with either a Jewish uh, understanding that we find in the Old Testament, where God clearly is one, uh, or when we are talking about the uh, Christian uh, teaching of the Trinity, we have the same uh, matter, and it comes down to this. Um, uh, how is it that the Bible is, is actually quite often referring to uh, Satan or an evil one or the devil, there are various names, and a fallen angel, and, uh, and, and clearly indicates that this, uh, this power is opposing God in some way or another. And as we find in the stories in the Gospels, they're quite clear about this, that Satan is actually there attacking, tempting, um, as we find, uh, for example, both in Mark, and then we find this also uh, in Luke and so on. Uh, Jesus goes out in the wilderness and is tempted by Satan. Then, at least in some of the uh, descriptions, Satan withdraws for a period of time. And then he comes back when the time is right. And so Christians do actually have to sit back and say, what do we mean by the devil? What's, what's going on here? Uh, how, how are we going to uh, work with this? And it didn't take the, the modern era 
what we consider to be the development of science to actually cause Christians real concern about Satan. I'm telling you that in the 12th century with Abelard and uh, with Anselm, they were also all, uh, already very nervous about talking about Satan. It's not as if they never would, but they were nervous about what was going to happen. And they themselves began to identify this as, in some way or another, mythological. Mm -hmm. That is, there's some kind of uh, stories told about Satan, but Satan doesn't really seem like he would be an actual person. And, uh, and we're, uh, they, they were not entirely uh, clear that he was, he certainly is not uh, a divinity. And that also is made clear in, uh, in scripture that he is not divine. But there is uh, a great deal of talk about the devil. We have to talk about it. And we have to talk about it also in an age now that we consider to be modern, where uh, modern means in large part you don't believe in miracles unless you can actually prove them in some fashion or another. And you don't believe in Satan. Uh, you actually identify evil in some other way than Satan, the devil, and so on. So that in many ways, the modern world that we live in is a, is a world that says, if you come around telling me that you believe that there is a devil, that the devil was involved in Christ's crucifixion, and that in some way or another, Jesus needed to overcome the devil, I'm going to tell you you're operating in a mythological world, and this is not actually what a reasonable person would talk about or think. And uh, the, the, uh, this classical uh, illustration of the crucifixion actually requires you to talk about the devil. And of course, you'll notice that one of the things that is really um, a recognizable feature of Luther and the Reformation is that Luther talks a lot about the devil. Luther is not, Luther is not separating out, and he's not refusing to talk about the devil. And many people uh, ever since the 16th century with Luther have tried to paint Luther as, on one foot, a new man, uh, bringing us into the new world uh, and into a modern society, and with the other foot, an old man of the old medieval world. And uh, they often point to the, to the discussion about Satan as an example of Luther still being in the old world. So when we take up this particular teaching on uh, atonement, the so-called classical theory that Jesus Christ dying on the cross actually tricks Satan into taking him in as bait, and then at the resurrection, Satan himself is shocked to find that he does not own or possess Christ. He has not defeated Christ, but he has to his own shock and dismay, been defeated by Christ in a way that he could never have anticipated or understood. And Luther is very well able to enter into that because he knows that we have to deal with the devil. We have to say something about it. We have to say what he did to Christ. 
what he was doing prior to the crucifixion and what he does even up to the present day. If, if we look at the other two models, the other two interpretations, um, I, I understand as we look to the uh, Latin view, the objective view, that um, there is, when one looks to Christ, there is a sense in which there's so much concern with Anselm on Christ's divinity so as to satisfy the system of accountability, accounting, uh, sufficient reason, necessary reason, that it almost becomes heretical in terms of um, not really affirming his humanity, docetic in a fashion. And on the other hand, with the subjective view, the more humanistic view, there's such a concern to emphasize his humanity that we lose sense of the actual divinity of Christ. And so then we err into the um, heresies of like Nestorianism or uh, flat out Arianism. And not to say that this is the perfect, the perfect interpretation with the Christus Victor, but I love the kind of continuity that's there from the incarnation into the atonement, into the resurrection. As Nick made clear a couple uh, weeks ago, how important it is that we emphasize the resurrection. And Nick, I don't know if you, you saw this or not in the notes, but uh, I'm going to, Steve and my uh, old mentor from Luther Seminary days, uh, who said, uh, I'm trying to find it here, Nick, um, but uh, Gerhard Ferdi said, if there is no resurrection, then um, the atonement doesn't make any sense. Uh, unless there is this continuity with the, uh, with the incarnation. And uh, so, Nick, uh, what, what, are, what are your thoughts in terms of something that you would see as a particular strength to this um, Christus Victor interpretation or the classic interpretation. Yeah, um, I thought that it kind of played into uh, the objective interpretation uh, that there was a price that needed to be paid and either man would pay it or God would pay it. And uh, I heard this in another devotion or something, uh, but in the Garden of Eden when Satan uh, corrupted God's creation, uh, mm -hmm. Satan was kind of smug thinking, well, now there's this irreconcilable uh, gap between the two, God's creation and God himself. I've, I've really uh, done him in. And I guess this gets to the question of, you know, does Satan have this type of power, this type of free will? Has, is he jealous for God's power, Satan's motivations? And at this point, we're kind of just speculating beyond our own capacity. Um, but nevertheless, Satan corrupted humanity, God's creation, and there is this price that needed to be paid. 
Uh, and then I guess this interpretation, uh, the Christus Victor, Victor says, uh, you know, Satan probably assumed that God himself would never stoop to the level to pay that debt. And so the creation would remain corrupted forever. Uh, and so I guess then the trick of the whole thing was that yeah, God himself did come down and die. So I see it kind of blending together with the objective view. You know, it's just almost like rebranding <laughs> the objective theory. And I think, I think in the history of Christian thought, and Steve, if you'd respond to this, Nick, I think you're spot on. I think that uh, for many people, uh, the objective or Latin view and that of the Christus Victor have been collapsed or confused oftentimes. In, in a fashion, given what Dr. Paulson had said, um, I think for a thousand years, there were those skeptical uh, of this uh, Latin view, the objective view, uh, or excuse me, the classical view, the Christus Victor view, and said, well, it's kind of a rough sketch here. Um, it, it's a little mythological. Uh, I think that we can give it a 2.0 <laughs> kind of upgrade here. And so in a fashion, I see what has been done here is um, trying with um, either the objective view of Anselm or Abelard to try to demythologize things and to uh, bring in reason uh, in a fashion for uh, people then going into the Enlightenment and saying, well, you know, I think this makes much more sense. And Steve, I will have to say, as I've been thinking about it since our last time together, that um, <laughs> uh, Regina and Kierkegaard and Heloise and uh, uh, Abelard, uh, what's going on here is, um, I think, beginning to kind of break apart. I think there is something that is very, very, in our time, attractive about this sense of love and um, trying to follow in the steps of Jesus and our bracelets of what would Jesus do, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's beginning to fall apart. And I would say that the objective view of Anselm is beginning to come more into play again with like Mel Gibson's movie, uh, The Passion of Christ. And I'm wondering, what would be your diagnostic on that? How, how would you analyze that? Yeah, I, I do think that um, even the way uh, atonement has been talked about in theology uh, ever since Abelard and Anselm, and then right on through the Reformation with Luther and so on, um, they they are trying to they are trying to demythologize. That's the modern way of saying it. They are trying to indicate why God would need to do this, send His Son to die. Um, but they they're playing with one uh, arm tied behind their back. In fact, that's too small. They, they're trying to figure this out, uh, presenting a view or an illustration, by thinking of the cross 
only in terms of a legal argument. Um, they have only the law in mind. And with that, they're trying to say something like this. God had to do this, even though he himself is almighty, which is very hard to say anything about God having to do anything when he's almighty. Um, and, uh, and that in some way or another, uh, it is not, as you just noticed, the resurrection that is needed to resolve this issue, but it's simply becoming aware of the, of the trick that God produced uh, in the cross. And once you know that, then you supposedly uh, can be saved by it. Uh, it's a knowledge that will then uh, tell you that this really was necessary. God really needed to do it. It makes sense if you really sit down and think about it. But every time somebody really sits down to think about it, according to the law, the case starts to fall apart. There are places in, in it that just don't seem right. Um, whether you're taking the objective view or the, uh, the subjective view, or you're taking this old view about defeating the devil and so on, there are things that reasonable people stop and say, that just doesn't quite make sense to me. It doesn't, it gets close, but it's not quite right. Um, and what, what all of these theories do is actually cut off the original problem, um, what we even mean by Satan falling and what original sin is. It cuts that problem off. And then it also cuts off the, the fact that Christ's um, death and resurrection actually are both needed. And furthermore, there's something else that's needed. Um, it's not needed in order for God to be a true God or something, but it's actually needed for us who otherwise don't trust or believe what Christ is actually saying. And that means that uh, with real atonement, the way to preach Christ, you will need to say not one thing, Christ died on the cross and saved you, not two things, Christ died on the cross, uh, and on the third day he was raised from the dead, and that this now is your salvation, but three things. Not only did Christ die on the cross and it was necessary, but on the third day he rose, and that was also necessary, but now we've got something else, and none of this is going to mean anything for you or for me until it actually comes to us through a preacher in the form of a promise that's delivered to us. And theologians have always tried to cut off this last one, definitely, that it needs to be preached and given to us in the present. That's what Luther really returned. They also cut off the resurrection, as you notice, because if you're Abelard or if you're Anselm, you can supposedly explain the entire um, uh, atonement by simply using the crucifixion, period. End of story. And here's where I think, here's where I think uh, our mentor, Nick, I know you've got to have three or four copies of 
Where God Meets Man by Gerhard Ferdy lying around the house. So on page 37, Gerhard just goes right into your face and he says, without the resurrection, the cross has no importance to us. And now we have to add this one further thing, which is, which is also added by, by Ferdy uh, and others, including Alain, although Alain is not quite as good about this as I would want him to be. That is, there's a third thing, and that is you, you actually need a baptism for this. Hmm. Otherwise, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is not going to be salvation for you, nor is his resurrection from the dead, because even the resurrection from the dead, which is truly an amazing thing, actually saved only one man, Jesus Christ. And it will not be salvation for any of us until it actually comes in the form of a word that is bestowed and given to us by the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ himself. So Christ came to be crucified, he came to be resurrected, and he came also for this, that is, he came now to forgive our sin. And with these three, then you actually do have atonement. But most of the atonement theories cut all of the last parts off, and they leave you with a uh, staring at the cross as if you could look at that cross and figure out how the entire redemption of the universe occurred in that moment in that time, and nobody can quite get it right. Yeah, uh, yeah excuse me, Steve. Uh, you were talking earlier about kind of the implied um, nature of God that's in each of these particular interpretations, and you started to kind of get into what this means in terms of the Christus Victor, uh, in terms of God, and, and to use this language of Luther too, in, in, in Christ we see the face of God in his uh, servant um, way of, of living life, but also just God's suffering, uh, God's nature in terms of his uh, coming to dwell among us in our flesh. And um, do you sense, Nick, that as we move from one to the next of these three, that there's an undertow of an understanding of God that's different in each one? Yeah. Um, so in the objective view, uh, I think we see uh, God, I guess the divinity of Christ, um, and we see uh I don't know. It's the satisfaction of a law or something, you know, it's just another criteria checked off. And then with the subjective view, we see a uh, mother Teresa or a Gandhi or a Martin Luther King Jr. You know, someone to try to emulate uh, God's love. We see all of these different things, but you can almost take God out of it at that point. It's just kind of a good guy. Um, and this is willing to would, yeah, would you be willing to say that in the objective view, you see a God of wrath who needs to somehow, some way, be appeased? Yeah, an impersonal God. Okay, okay. Yeah, an impersonal God in the objective view. And then with the last, or, well, the first view chronologically, the last view that we've talked about in this series, the Christus Victor, um, 
I think we, I, this is probably my favorite view of God. Uh, maybe not as they taught it with the, the hook and that God tricked. Um, not that it was a trick, but that uh, this option was always open and people knew about it, that there had to be this reconciliation, uh, that uh, there's this corruption of uh, God's creation that somehow had to be reconciled. And I think Satan, maybe the assumption is that Satan thought, you know what, there's no way that God would ever stoop so low. Uh, And so, and maybe, you know, that's God's design through this whole narrative, you know, uh, the narrative, the the fall, then the reconciliation, and now the new creation, uh, that God set himself up uh, to demonstrate his deep love for us, his humility, reveal his nature to us. Uh, and, and so I, I think the, the Christus Victor uh, gets at that nature of God better than the other two, the one where God is so impersonal and the other where God is just this, uh, you know, another saint, <laughs> you know. Well, you you are, uh, and I know uh, Pastor Christopherson pointed this out uh, earlier. You're touching on a very important matter that keeps getting goofed up when you're when you're preaching Christ uh, and the cross, and that is the the union of the divine and human nature in Christ, and that keeps getting goofed up, and it probably shouldn't surprise us that this gets goofed up because if all you have is the law to figure out what makes God righteous, if that's all you've got, then you have to figure out how it is that, um, that, that, that righteousness is going to be returned once it has been lost. And do you need a divinity, a divine power to do that? Or do you need a truly human power to do that? And then what people have done historically is to divide these two up. Uh, and one, one rides the human, as you say, you know, uh, in imitation of likeness of love. The other one rides the divinity, which says somehow a power much greater than us has to pay a debt or penalty that we cannot repay. Uh, and they always end up doing what Luther observed uh, happens to people when they only have the law. They divide God up into parts. That's what they do. Specifically, they divide Christ, and they can't figure out how these are, in fact, put together. And lo and behold, the old, um, the old original illustration of, of the uh, hook and the trick uh, to, uh, regarding Satan and so on, actually comes back to this because uh, they figured for the first thousand years that Satan could not understand God incarnate. He could not get this. Uh, No matter how hard he tried, how many books he read, no matter how learned he was, he could not get the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. And all of that, no doubt, is true. Uh, and uh, Christ himself then uses this inability to put together the human and divine, which Christ himself has done, 
uses it to trick Satan. Uh, or if you don't like that kind of terminology, and by the way, you can you can see why people did not like that terminology. What kind of a god stoops to tricking uh, a uh, an underling who should not have the same power as he has anyway, and isn't tricking people itself somehow operating outside of the law? Lo and behold, that is true, uh, and God actually uh, enters into it, but. Um, but this this does come back to the issue of divinity and humanity together in Christ. Neither Satan nor uh, sinful human beings can figure out what that is, why it is, as they called uh, called it, necessary for this to happen. They sit there scratching their heads over and over again about why did this have to happen this way and. What must have been the case for, for the, the divine God to actually need to become human and then for the human to overcome uh, the, uh, death itself, which is the most human thing of all humanity, uh, and, uh, and be resurrected? But here is the, the, the thing that Luther began to observe. The thing that Satan could never grasp is even greater than the incarnation. The thing that Satan couldn't grasp is that God gave the law at the very beginning, but the law was never given to save anyone. Satan could not figure that one out no matter how hard he tried. And what Satan really couldn't figure out is that in Christ, who is divine and human, in such a way that when he dies on the cross, not only does the man die, but God himself dies, which Satan thought could never happen. Nevertheless, uh, Satan could not believe that the law that God himself gave came to an end. And this was more of a shock to Satan than, uh, than to anyone else. And Satan to this day is sitting down in his uh, hot little office, trying to figure out uh, how this could possibly have happened since God gave, the best thing God ever gave in the world was the law, and the law came to an end. And he's still trying to figure this out. He's not just puzzled by the divine and human uh, together in one person, the incarnation. He's ab ab absolutely shocked by what happened to Christ on the cross as divine and human regarding the law itself. And to this day, the devil can't figure out what to do about it. Since the, back, only, tool, the only tool the devil has to work with is to talk to people about the law. That's all, the only thing he has to work with. Steve, I'm gonna go almost full circle to our first session together where you spoke about the death of God to use the language of Luther, the crucified God. You made the comment, this is God who gives of himself for his creation for humanity, that God um, dies 
And then you used a little caveat and you said, no, not just a third of God, but all. Could you say something a little bit more to kind of unpack that for us? Yes, uh, I'll say two things. I'll say them yeah. fast, and then you tell me if you want if we want to go further. The first thing to say is that it is Jesus Christ Himself who is fully and completely God, not just a third of God. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ Himself and alone, sometimes referred to. This is a little bit hard as the second person of the divine three persons, the divine Trinity. It is only the second person, not the first father, or the third, the Holy Spirit, who dies on the cross. It is only the second person. It is not the father who dies. It is not the Holy Spirit who, who dies. That's the first thing I want to say. However, that does not say that one third of God died, as if right. one third of the pie was now cut out. That's not uh, what is meant by this. Now the second point. Mm -hmm. After we've said that uh, it is only Jesus Christ, it is not his Father who dies, not the Holy Spirit who dies, but Jesus Christ who dies on the cross, then we have to say this as, uh, as well. When you have Jesus Christ, that is when you possess him, or are united to him, or he is in you, there are all kinds of ways to say this, when you have Christ, you have all of God, not one-third of God, not one part of God. And the whole God that you've got there is the God who has died once and for all, but been raised on the third day, and now has come to actually preach and speak to you, not just to perform wonderful mythical miracles of of a uh, of a, of amazing divine death and then an amazing uh, human resurrection or something like that, but actually now to come and say something to you so that his word goes in your ear and no longer does Satan's word stay in your ear. And unless he comes and, and does that, you and I will not be saved, the law will not end, and, and we could never say what I'm saying now, if you did not have a promise that begins in baptism, that is to say, when Jesus Christ died, all of God died. Uh, the only way I can say that is the God who is uh, incarnate in Jesus Christ, who came and preached to me by giving me a promise that is all of God, and that is the only God I have. And when I have him, I have all of God, wherever, whoever uh, he might be, including the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a mouthful, but uh, it is, it's, it's, it's holding to both these statements. Only the Son died, not the Father, and, the, and not the Father, not the Holy Spirit. But when the son died and was raised on the third day and came and preached a word to us, which is forgiveness of this sin for killing him, then now you have all of God in this one incarnate man, Jesus Christ, and therefore your God died wholly and completely. But he was also raised wholly and completely. 
Now so, you've got that. Now you've got the, the, the teaching. So uh, might it be fair to say that one can really only begin to apprehend, not comprehend, uh, the wonder of the atonement is within an overarching sense of the doctrine of the Trinity. That to understand the doctrine of the atonement, you need to be working with the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, yes, but now I now I'll I'll, make, I'll try to make the point clearer. You can have a doctrine of the Trinity all day long, yeah, and still not have redemption in Jesus Christ. Yeah, uh, okay. and uh, this is typically what happened with Abelard, Anselm, and for that matter, uh, even uh, the the Nyssa brothers and the, uh, the 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 beginners of this uh, of this first classic version of the defeat of Satan and so on. Even even uh, all all of these people were trying to give an explanation for the atonement by stepping outside of a preached word and explaining it using yeah. a doctrine. Yeah. Once they did that, they got themselves into a muck they, they could never get out because then it was no longer preaching Christ in him crucified. It was explaining Christ in him crucified. And an explanation is not the same thing as a promise given to you by Christ. When Christ comes and he gives you a promise as he does in baptism, then suddenly you will start working out all of the necessary conclusions of that to say, if he forgave me, I must have needed forgiving. What did I need forgiving for? Ah, the crucifixion of him in particular. Then I have to work back, and then I have to say, well, how did he end up being crucified? Then you would say, uh, his father must have really wanted it. And then we come back and say, no, it wasn't the necessity of the father. It was that I, as a sinner, wouldn't have it any other way. I insisted that he do this, whether he like it or not. Then you start working back a bit by bit, but then you are no longer purely speculating or teaching a doctrine of Trinity or something like that. Now you actually have a belief in the triune God that is centered in the one word of Jesus Christ, and now you know what the rest of the world can't quite figure out how he came to atone for my sins. So, given that, and I hope that people listening to this podcast will try to bring together uh, various uh, hymns in their tradition that speak out of or into these particular interpretations of the atonement. Because as you say, uh, here is one verse of a hymn, Ah, Holy Jesus, it goes this way. Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus hath undone thee. Twas I, Lord Jesus, I was denied thee. I crucified thee. How much difference with that compared to were you there? Which is well beloved <laughs> in my pietistic background. Were you there when 
who crucified my Lord? They, were you there when they nailed him to the tree? So there's a huge difference just in the lyrics of those two hymns that we have within the same two covers of a hymnal. But Nick, this is what I want to bring us a grin to Dr. Paulson's face as we now move into our, our concluding time together. A wise man once wrote, trying to help us understand that there's a huge difference in these verses of these hymns and the difference between an explanation and a proclamation. There's a child who's playing out in the street. A truck driver is oblivious to this child and his truck is quickly bearing down on this child. A man casts himself onto the path of this truck and saves the child, but in doing so, is killed in the process. So, Nick, let me ask, when you think of this scenario of the atonement, who are we in this story? Are we the child in the street? Are we the man who throws himself out and is killed in saving the neighbor, which would be, of course, Abelard would be all over that. Who are we in this story, Nick, you think? Are we the truck driver? <laughs> Steve, I really don't think he should be going to Wake Forest this fall. <laughs> yes, he should definitely be driving truck. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, that, that, that is so stunning that we are the truck driver. Yeah, that's right. Do you want yes. do you want to give us a coda on that, Steve, and then we'll be out? Yeah, here's the coda, and it, 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 it is the proper end to the illustration that Gerhard Ferdi liked to use. The first thing he pointed out was that this is a sacrifice uh, that uh, Christ makes when the truck driver is bearing down. By the way, the truck driver is thinking that he is doing uh, the good work of the Lord, bringing in uh, loaves of bread or perhaps... Uh, a, a good load of uh, Coors or something like that. And uh, nevertheless, uh, trying to get there on time and so on, uh, trying to be a good truck driver. Uh, and in order to preserve this uh, person, uh, Christ has to step in the way and give up his own life. That's a sacrifice. The first thing uh, Ferdy says after that is, that is not a ritual sacrifice performed in a church that then tries to appease the wrath of God, that is a secular sacrifice and the way that sacrifice really should be understood when it comes to Christ. But here's the way that story actually needs to come to an end. Not only did Christ jump in front of the truck that we were driving and trying so carefully to get to our destination, not only did he save an unwitting victim from us, but uh, this particular um, death that we have wrought is truly devastating to us. 
in a way that we can't get over. The trek driver doesn't, uh, doesn't then go to a therapist and say to the therapist, what should I do about this since I now have killed my Lord, but it was unwitting. Then the therapist says, oh, don't worry about that. You didn't mean to. And that's, after all, what it really comes down to. And it's not really your fault. Then you go home at night and you say, I don't care what that uh, therapist said. Uh, I continue to be haunted by this, and I believe it's my fault. Then, lo and behold, one day, this same man who sacrificed his life jumped in front of the truck, sent a preacher on his behalf to come to the truck driver and say very specifically to the truck driver, I know what you did. I am not telling you that what you did is not your fault or don't worry about it. I needed to do it in order to save the world. I have come to tell you, you killed me. Nevertheless, I now forgive you entirely and completely. And when that same one who was, uh, who was crucified, killed, run over by us, comes and actually bestows the forgiveness, here he's not talking as a therapist, nor is he talking about one friend to another saying things like, don't worry about it, I can handle it. He now is speaking about God himself and alone who can actually forgive the sin. Take you as a dead creature and make you a new creation and actually now make you righteous outside of the law entirely. And from that point on, you will run around the world talking about nothing more than the day you ran over Christ uh, and then the day that that same Christ came and freed you once and for all with the promise of the forgiveness of sin. And once you have that, then you'll know what atonement means. Well, thank you, Dr. Paulson, and thank you, Nick, for this lively exchange. And uh, I think actually there's somebody that spoke about atonement as a happy exchange. Perhaps we can conclude next time with uh, uh, kind of wrapping this up in terms of um, how we understand uh, these efforts, why uh, they came together, why it is so important for us to, to really wrestle with some of the issues here with um, sin and with understanding the nature of God and understanding how we are a part of this. As we've just seen, we're the old truck driver here uh, with this load of cores, if you will, uh, with all good intent. We're back in the courtroom again there. But um, how is it that uh, we move then from this wrestling with um, understanding to the point of moving from explanation to proclamation and how that can be done in such a way that it really comes home uh, to people's hearts and not just to the mind. So uh, again, thanks for your time and we'll see you next week.